Yeah. Come on, Brian. You want to kick this thing off, man? Yeah. Let's uh, let's do it. It is. Uh, yeah. I feel like I just talked to you. Is it possible that I did just talk to you just maybe yesterday? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> we're, we're in a recording frenzy right now. It's yeah. the end of the year. We got to catch up and then also have an opportunity to take time off. Well, we're going to package this one up. We're going to put a beautiful bow on it. We're going to put it under the tree. Uh, but I don't know exactly when we're going to deliver it. So you may have to just get a belated, you know, belated holiday gift. Um, or, you know, we, it, you never know. You never know. So uh, with that in mind, speaking of you never know, um, there are things that we just don't know um, about big data as a service, right? So we're going to do that. Um, we're going to introduce our guest. We're going to talk about yet another exciting topic. Um, so let's just kick this thing off. Let's do this. Let's do it. Welcome to the Hot Aisle. Uh, I am one of your hosts. I'm Brian Carpenter. And with me... Brian Piatti, good morning. Good morning. Uh, and I got to say, I'm feeling it, so it's just going to come out. I love you, buddy. Love you too, man. Yeah. So, and uh, I also, I love big data and I cannot lie. Um, and so I'm <laughs> going to, yeah, I did it. And so we're going to have another conversation today. We're going to talk about kind of uh, big data as a service, machine learning as a service, uh, how people are, t- you know, using systems and architectures in different ways to get to the point where they can do these kind of important tools in their environments. Uh, and so we went out and we found an expert like we always do. We're going to learn from that expert. We're going to bring that knowledge back to all of you. Uh, and so with us today, we have Tom Phelan from Blue Data. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brent. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be on. Yeah. Did we do that well? I hope we did. Uh, if you were laughing quietly, we did it right. So, um, yes. <laughs> so we, you know, let's talk a little bit about you, Tom. We, uh, we did do some digging. Uh, it is a little creepy, but Brent is fantastic at research. And uh, we always like to get to know the guest. Um, so, you know, the reason we have you here is we, you know, I was talking to some friends uh, about, you know, kind of um, big data architectures. And somebody's like, hey, have you seen Blue Data? And I'm like, I haven't. And so I literally grabbed my phone, started digging through, and I found you on LinkedIn. I reached out, and it was so kind of you to respond instead of ignore us, um, <laughs> that, you know, which is fantastic. And here you are. So we have you as a co-founder and chief architect of Blue Data. Is that, the, is that accurate? Yep, that's what I've been doing for the last five years. Yeah, and um, so, and we're going to get to Blue Data and some of the things you're doing there. But if we rewind a little bit, some of the other fun things uh, we've actually, you know, sort of run into your work before because you were a, a senior staff engineer at VMware. That's correct. Yeah, I was, uh, one of the people that worked on the storage subsystem for ESX. You know, I joined the company when it was very young, and uh, and and brought them all the way up to the popularity they enjoy today. Yeah, I, I, I want to dig into that a little bit because it's actually a lot of fun. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people's lives that have been impacted by ESX. Uh, I do want to say thank you on, on my behalf. Uh, I've done a little bit of storage work inside ESX. Uh, you know, tell us the senior staff engineer job. Like, what, is, what does that entail? Uh, what were you doing kind of day to day? What is your kind of 10-year evolution of your, of, your, sure. um, of your job there look like from a VMware perspective? Sure. Well, that's great. Uh, actually, um, it probably if I, I would just give me a little latitude here, I can move back a little bit in time. I was at uh, Silicon Graphics many years ago and uh, worked on XFS, the file system, when it was owned by uh, uh, Silicon Graphics before it was open sourced. And at the time, I met Diane Green, uh, the founder of VMware, uh, and uh, got to know her. And, and she eventually left uh, Silicon Graphics and started a company. And then she called me years later and said, hey, Tom, I think this virtualization thing is going to take off. And I said, Diane, I don't think it's going to take off. 
you know, I just don't think that's going to work. And so I didn't join VMware at the very beginning. And I joined another startup. But then five years after that, I saw the light and went back to Diane and said, hey, you need some help. And she said, yes, why don't you join us now? So uh, I joined them a little bit later than I could have. But to get to your question about uh, the life of a staff engineer, you know, at the time, Blue Data, excuse me, <laughs> now I'm confused with Blue Data and, and VMware, but VMware was uh, just starting out. Um, ESX hadn't really even started. It was still the workstation product. And when I got there, we, uh, Ray O'Farrell and, and his team were just starting to come together with the ESX. And uh, we decided to build the whole hypervisor operating system around that. A central component of it was storage. And at the time, we, you know, we were looking at all the uh, industry standard storage from IBM, Hitachi, HP, EMC, et cetera, and how to bring that into um, VMware. Uh, we started out with VMFS, and of course, now we, they have vSAN and so forth. But the whole idea around that was how to make it performant, how to make virtual machines access shared storage quickly and uh, be able to move them or move the virtual machines transparently from one physical host to another. So that's what I was doing for them for, for, for 10 years. Uh, and you know, that actually led to, to my work at, at Blue Data. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, I, I, honestly, I think we could probably do a whole nother episode talking to you about the, the origins of, uh, you know, block storage inside of VMware, BMFS, and a bunch of other things. I bet we'd learn a lot. Um, but that's not really focused on what we're doing today. So we'll just save that. We'll put it in our back pocket in case we uh, in case somebody says no to us one day. Um, so, you know, the the silicon graphics was another thing we're going to reach out to. But as you've you know progressed past VMware, uh, you know, as a co-founder of Blue Data, uh, you know, we always like to hear these stories. Were, was it a couple of y'all in a coffee house? You know, were you at like a Waffle House getting some, you know, smothered, covered and fried and grabbed a napkin, a really dirty napkin and like made Blue Data? Or how did this, how did this thing start? And what were you trying to solve as you were thinking about what you were starting? Okay. Uh, it's the two of us. It's Kumar Srikanti, who is a vice president of R&D at VMware and myself, and we had uh, been kicking around some ideas while we were at VMware saying, hey, you know, VMware has done this tremendous work with virtualizing many workloads. So uh, many common workloads were being taken from physical boxes and placed into virtual machines, and you get all the agility and, and reduction in cost and so forth with that. But um, one of the application areas that we found was not really uh, taking off was those disk intensive applications. So um, when I was at VMware, there was this term called the washing machine effect, which is if you had multiple applications running in VMs on the same physical host and the IOs or the storage IOs from those uh, applications were sent down to shared storage, the shared storage couldn't really uh, make heads or tails of them. Uh, it couldn't really track which IOs were coming from which IO stream, and therefore its caching algorithms weren't as good as they could be. Um, Kumar and I saw this as a real problem, and we said, I think you know, we, we can have a solution for this. And it was a typical coffee house thing. I think it was actually Pete's uh, down in um, Mountain View where we met and said, hey, you know, I, I think we can make this work. Um, let's try to do it. You know, we can leave our, our uh, nice jobs here in VMware and see what we can do on our own. And that's how it started. Awesome. And so, you know, five years ago, as you were starting it, you know, today we see, um, you know, kind of the this whole virtualized, um, you know, big data stacks. 
there's a lot of different ways to attack it, right? Is it, uh, is it VMware? Is it VMs? Is it, uh, you know, we see a good bit of containerization. And obviously, as Brent and I know your story, there's some containerization there. Mm-hmm. As you were looking at it five years ago, was it more of a, you know, kind of heavy VM uh, type experience? Or were you already starting to kind of, uh, you know, crack the shell on what containers might do? And were you heading straight towards the container environment? Or was it something completely different we're not even thinking of? Actually, when we first started out uh, with the idea of Blue Data, it was orthogonal to, to what kind of virtualization solution uh, we were actually going to target it for. Um, so what we wanted to do is we wanted to create an API and then an underlying uh, storage layer that would permit the application running in the virtual environment, whether at the time it was you know uh, hypervisors or containers was really kind of uh, a second to us. And we, wa- and we wanted to do that. So uh, what we did is we actually wrote Blue Data first with um, OpenStack. So we were, we were using the KVM hypervisor as the medium for running the application. That application would then give hints to the Blue Data storage layer, storage layer which would then do different types of caching, whether it was read-ahead caching for those workloads which were doing more or less sequential IOs, or if it was doing some sort of intelligent uh, right behind and data compression with um, IOs that were more random, or if we had a known working set size or something like that. Um, and so, so the first product, the 1.0 product of Blue Data went out on um, OpenStack, but we were always assuming that we would work with, virt- with uh, VMware or any other hypervisor that came along. Um, what we found after about a year or so in the field with OpenStack is that, hey, this container technology looks like it was taking taking hold of the, the, uh, a lot of um, advancements with Docker. And so we said, hey, I think we can make this work with uh, containers. And that's when we switched. And we haven't looked back. You know, the, the Docker containers and container technology in general continues to evolve. And it looks like it's uh, a real value to the customer in terms of reducing their cost, reducing their overhead of virtualization. Yeah, cool. So, Tom, uh, you know, Clearly, it's been an evolution for you in the, in the way that you initially uh, went to market with Blue Data, and it's transitioned into containers. Um, let's talk about, from your personal life perspective, what got you interested in technology and took you down this path? I mean, if I look at LinkedIn, you've been a software developer in some way, shape, or form your entire life. You went to school for computer science. What, uh, what got you the bug? I think I've always had uh, an interest in understanding how things work and, and how to th- make things work better. Uh, I went to, to UC Berkeley for, for my degree. Um, when I graduated from there with a bachelor's, I always intended to go back for a master's or PhD, but then I found it was more fun to get things to work. So I went into industry working for a number of uh, Unix or Linux companies at the time before ending up in, in Silicon Graphics. But I always had an interest in storage, just seemed to to be something interesting to me. You know, first it was how do you do automatic bad block mapping and recovery? Then it became how do you increase the performance and how do you increase the performance in virtualized media? And then finally, you know, all the way up to to Blue Data where we're using containers and all sorts of forward-looking technology to um, optimize the the storage IO performance. Well, you've got a knack for it. If we look at the number of patents you have, I see nine listed. Um, and this has been over the years, and it looks like a few of them are, are certainly associated to Blue Data, uh, but I'm suspecting that many are before that time. Yes. 
Um, so clearly a thought leader in this space. What, um, you know, tell me about some of those patents, which are your most kind of prized ones. Sure, sure. As you point out, yes, yeah, some of those are from from VMware days. Some of those are new ones that we've we were just uh, successfully had issued at Blue Data. I think one of the, the primary patents that I had was at at VMware, um, and uh, this was in the pluggable storage modules. There, if you if you're familiar with that, the, the F, uh, ESX at VMware has a layer of software which allows uh, different multipathing software algorithms to be plugged in. So I'm not sure where uh, how VMware has progressed, but at the time we had two of them. We had one from PowerPath, which is obviously coming from the EMC technology. And then we had one that was kind of a built-in or a native from, from uh, VMware. Um, so that how that worked and how that those uh, layered softwares plugged into each other, that was a, a great patent, very strong patent for, for VMware. Like, I always uh, uh, look back upon that one. Some of the ones with, with Blue Data, um, these are more, I would say, uh, evolutionary rather than revolutionary patents at this time. So we're doing things with how we map memory from the Hadoop or Spark application running within the container. Uh, and we, we map it simultaneously to an external process, uh, which is we call a blue data called C node or caching node. And that way we have a zero copy movement of data from our caching solution up into the application itself. Um, and that allows us to get some of the performance that, that we have achieved with, with DataTap. DataTap is the technology that Blue Data uses to make um, external storage, that, which may or may not be HDFS. And I know that's a kind of a buzzword within the big data Hadoop community. Uh, but we do a protocol translations from you know, perhaps NFS storage, perhaps block storage, something else. On the outside, um, wrap it in an HDFS protocol and then surface it to the big data application running in the container. So those are the ones that I, I really that really stand out in my mind. Well, very cool. Thank, so, Tom, thanks, first of all, for your, your contributions to the industry. And, and with that, let's get into the industry talk about what's going on in big data. So my first question around big data, do you love or hate the term? Oh, big, big data, uh, I think, you know, at a 50,000 foot level describes what we're all trying to do here. So, you know, there are these great oceans of data, whether it's IoT, you know, click data, whatever. Um, and we're trying to find something in there, you know, needle in the haystack. I, I, the problem I do have with big data is that nobody has the same definition. So when we speak to a customer or a prospect or even to other engineers in the, in the field, uh, we always have to spend the first few minutes discussing, well, what do you actually mean when you say blue data? Or what do you actually mean when you say HDFS? Is it the protocol? Is it how the implementation and so forth? So uh, it has goods and bads. I, I, I find nothing wrong with the term in and of itself because I do think it, it aptly describes what we're trying to do here. Okay, good. So I, I think, you, you know, you, you hit on a point earlier, like big data, it can mean a litany of different things. Uh, Gartner's, I guess, predicted in 2017, we're closely uh, approaching the end of that, but roughly 60% of, of all big data projects will fail, which is, I think, better than what was, I think it was last year, maybe two years ago, the 80% uh, would fail. So clearly we're seeing decline in failures, which is good, but why are we still having all of these failures around big data projects? Well, that's very good. Uh, I actually think there's two primary reasons that we that we see failure, um, and, and they're 
completely different. I, I think the first reason we see failure is um, enterprises may not exactly know what problems they are trying to solve. So they, they read all the, the uh, industry analysis and they see the success of their competition um, and the, the competition attributes that success to more targeting sales or more targeted this or that due to big data analysis. And so many companies attempt to do big data analysis with not a, a clear idea of what they're looking for. So um, that's the first thing we always work with a, a, a prospect that, that we go into. Hey, you know, really, what, what is your use case? What are you really trying to accomplish with all these tools? And have you selected the appropriate tool? So, you know, once the enterprise has identified what they want to do, and, you know, we talk about the appropriate tools for accomplishing that, that's a big step in the right direction towards success of the big data project itself. Then secondly, obviously, it's the execution of that project. And that's why I think actually most of that 60% um, uh, dropout comes from. Uh, these are very complex systems. Uh, when... Intel, excuse me, when Google or LinkedIn or Facebook, you know, use big data, they use it because they have extremely large staffs of highly qualified people who can actually run them and keep them running. Most enterprises um, don't have that staff or the funding to keep that staff available if they did have those, those people. Uh, and so that's, that's where the failures occur. Uh, people hear open source. They say, hey, open source, I can get this for free. Well, no, open source is great and it's a wonderful thing, but it does take constant monitoring and you have to apply your own patches and you have to, to do the debugging and the analysis and, and the configuration. All these take time and, and that's where we, we see many uh, pro uh, projects within enterprises go off the rails is they underestimated the, the complexity of the challenge. Uh, perhaps they selected tool sets which were not state-of-the-art or which were in fact on the way out, as opposed to the you know the, the higher popularity, um, and that's you know that's where companies like Blue Data help them out. We help them uh, select the appropriate tools, use a, a good stack that works, and, and and stand behind them during this very difficult journey to getting their big data systems up and productive. And yeah, you talk about popularity, right? So one of the yes. other things we saw um, was kind of this inter innovation enterprise. 2018 big data predictions, right? And there's a couple predictions on here. Um, before we get into those, just to kind of show what they do, I'm curious, you know, do you have a couple of predictions that you like to try to tell people and explain to them not only the problem that they already know they have, but the problems they haven't even figured out that they're going to have uh, and where they're headed with this information? Uh, you know, a lot of times it's they, they think they have one project, but they don't realize that they actually have, you know, 17 projects in front of them they haven't even thought about yet. <clears throat> yeah, actually, there's there's two areas there I'd like to talk about. Um, one is first, is, as you point out, in the tool set. And we even see this in a company as short-lived short as Blue Data. Uh, five years ago, MapReduce, in fact, MapReduce version one was the state-of-the-art. Everybody was doing that in their big data analysis. Then Yarn came along, MapReduce 2.0, and then finally Spark which is currently what, what is probably most popular in industry. But I think, you know, in the next few years, we're really going to see the rise of um, tools like TensorFlow, more AI, more um, uh, deep learning. Uh, and we're moving away from just this kind of batch-oriented uh, big data analysis with, with Hadoop Yarn. So 
yeah, I, I have to point out to every customer, we don't even know what tomorrow is going to be. It could be Flink. It could be something else. It could be some new technology. Whenever you come up with your big data strategy, you have to be aware. You have to be future-proof because tomorrow your data scientists are going to come into your office. They're going to say, hey, I got this new tool. I want to run it. And you got to make sure your infrastructure can support that. Yeah, so that's, I don't have it, by the way, it's not very nice to talk about the rise of anything and say artificial intelligence in the same sentence there, right? So I'm sorry. True. Yeah, uh, it's, it's scary. So yeah, they, they actually mentioned a couple of similar things, right? So uh, public cloud adoption, um, real-time analytics growth. Uh, we should probably get into what you believe about real-time because you mentioned getting away from batch-oriented. Uh, you know, Spark is micro-batching, and then there's other people who are like, full-time or believe they're full-time like real-time streaming i'd like to see what you think about that um and then you know there's other things right so media scrutiny around kind of the the analysis tools and how people are analyzing people uh and then of course uh, ai machine learning deep learning and if we if we stretch really far out there people are starting to actually think quantum might impact them at some point sure. matter of fact i saw a quantum processor at the supercomputing conference i thought that stuff was all fake uh, I thought it was all science project, but apparently somebody's bought bought at least one. Um, so, uh, what do you what do you think about some of those, especially um, you know public cloud around big yeah. data? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of questions there, there Brian. We could talk forever on that. Um, but yeah, the public cloud. Let's talk about that. Uh, so, we Blue Data has a, a tool which is a hybrid solution, which will you know allow a merging of on-premise resources with cloud resources. And that seems to be where, where most of the enterprises are today. We see, um, you know, obviously some internet companies, some smaller firms are totally on the public cloud. But uh, everybody else, those who have, you know, long-running businesses, they've been in business for decades, they have a lot of on-premise storage. And everybody is struggling on how to um, safely move that, that data into the public cloud. And... Um, you know, Blue Data is helping them on that journey, but but we're we're a distance away from even with encryption, encryption at rest, encryption in, in transit, we're, we're we're a ways away from a wholesale migration of legacy data from the data center into the public cloud. So while I think the public cloud is great for for new data, you know, if you're running a web application and you're collecting your data uh, directly natively into a, a cloud storage on AWS or Azure or GCE, that's great and we can process it there. But I, I still think I have to give people caution. Legacy data on a data center is going to be around uh, uh, for us for quite some time. Yeah, absolutely. So with regard to public cloud adoption and specifically around, you know, Hadoop workloads and big data, um, you know, I've had customers in the past running specifically Hadoop and, you know, it's they said it's crushing them in cost, but uh, they've been given the money to do it and they'll do it. I've read articles that you've written uh, and that, you know, kind of Blue Data is talking about, which is uh, cost savings. So yes. I'd, I'd be curious to understand the the differences between those two and why we're moving into this, you know, this what you call, call a cost saving model. Well, we have, we have seen that um, where there is a real uh, break point currently in, in public cloud pricing where, yes, if you are a startup company or a small company, and you have uh, a small amount of big data um, CPU costs or needs, then yes, you do not need to invest in the on-premise infrastructure of perhaps a lab and cooling and electricity and servers and software. Uh, then it makes sense to 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 use um, 
resources from Amazon or GCE or Azure. But there, there seems to be a breaking point that after a certain period of time uh, where there's a certain amount of, of uh, CPU requirements and you're running 7 by 24 analysis, uh, your entire business is built on, on big data, then it becomes more uh, cost effective to spin up your own data centers, to uh, have your own servers and your own software because uh, the cost that you're paying to those cloud, cloud providers is, is impressive on a, on a monthly basis if you see those bills. So um, it, it would really depend on, you know, how, how much processing, big data processing is being done per month by those enterprises to determine where, uh, where it would be more cost effective for the company to spend their dollars. Sure, sure. And, and you brought up, and Brian touched on it before too, but moving away from kind of batch-oriented uh, big data processing and moving something to more streaming or real-time, uh, talk about that transition. What are the tools that are there today or touted as, as being real-time, but maybe they're not, or perhaps they're, 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 they are? Uh, the the real-time tools are, are very strong, especially when we talk about ingestion tools like, like Kafka and the like, which you know, st stream data in into big data repositories. Uh, what we're seeing is you know, people are using pipelining now. There's combinations of infrastructures that are being put together to, to implement the workload. So you may ingest data with one of these streamers, like I say, like Kafka. You might do some you know, uh, high order batch processing using a Hadoop cl cluster. And then you'd use Spark with its distributed RDDs and its in-memory databases to actually do your queries, you know, and that, that would be a real-time query solution, especially with, with things like notebooks at Jupyter and so forth. Um, there's a real nice uh, interactive uh, environment for authoring the query. You can have the data scientists go in there and they may not know exactly what they're looking for, but they have domain knowledge and they have an understanding of what data sets are available and they can use those tools to, to do queries. And, and uh, once they generate their, their query, they can run a longer batch, but a lot of it is iterative where they will take these tools, like I say, the particular, the Spark notebooks and uh, do their development real time. Yeah, very cool. So clearly there's a lot of tools uh, that need to be used out there. And there's, you know, depending on the data science team, uh, and the the analytics teams, they may want to use different things. Which uh, so so, how do you guys support a, such a kind of a, a vast uh, amount of different tools that want to be used? And then you've got a platform that uh, enables you know access to data. So how are you supporting? Well, that's a real key. So so when we you know we were meeting at that coffee shop five years ago, one of the things we said is we don't want to get into the uh, uh, area of customizing applications to run on whatever environment you know, Blue Data comes up with. So one of the unshakable tenants was we will run unmodified open source software. And that has proved to be an, a good decision on our part because you know, we can easily incorporate new big data platforms as, as they come out of the open source community. So it doesn't really matter what, what application is running. Um, our automation system is designed to basically take the same RPMs, the same packages that are installed on bare metal, um, deploy them into Docker containers, automate the configuration and bring up, which is some of the most challenging components of the application, um, and then deliver it to the customer. And so uh, the, the, the experience or the, what we were always shooting for and what we have achieved is that the data scientist um, will not know, uh, and they don't really care to be quite frank, uh, whether the 
big data application is running on a bare metal server or whether it's running in a virtualized environment like Blue Data, they can still get their job done without uh, a learning ramp. Absolutely. Well, hey, thanks for the transition. But you wrote a blog here just recently uh, about virtualized and then Dockerized big data and, and how it was comparing to bare metal. So talk us through that first, the kind of virtualized and then the Dockerized and um, you know what you did to, to make that a reality. Sure. Um, so if you, if you go into any big enterprise today uh, and, and if they're you know, we normally break it down into greenfield opportunity, which might be an enterprise which is just starting out on their big data journey, um, or they may be much more mature. What we find is that there are anywhere between five or 12 or maybe even 30 different physical clusters running within the enterprise. So um, obviously all the, the great names are there. It might be MapR, it might be Cloudera, it might be, it might be Hortonworks or IBM or something, but they, they'll have multiple big data clusters um, and the IT staffs for the enterprises have gone in and they've taken, you know, 10 machines, 20 machines, 30 machines, hundreds, assembled them into these clusters for probably one business unit. And they've tuned and configured those physical resources for whatever the, the needs of that particular business unit are. And then they maintain it. And so it's a very static architecture. You know, what, what they find is they have, you know, 20 machines in this one cluster and they have 30 machines in this other cluster. But then that one cluster with the 10 machines is, is really underutilized. And there's no way for them easily to move CPU or memory resources from that cluster to the cluster, which requires more, more computational power at that moment in time. And that's really the issue that, that is a problem with... Um, the, the static or the, the the bare metal installation of big data tools that the workflows for these things change on a on a on a weekly if not daily basis and you need to be able to move the resources to the job that requires them at the time and that's where virtualization comes in and so certainly you know uh, hypervisors whether it's OpenStack or VMware are are good for that you install your your code into the the virtual machine you can actually spin up new virtual machines and add compute nodes on the fly um, Hadoop uh, and the big data in general is very good at this that they they have the whole concept of of scalability and agility built into the application itself Right? You can bring up nodes quickly. You can bring on more workers if your Spark cluster requires it. You can take them away easily if it doesn't. And that, that's an infrastructure in an application that's begging for, for virtualization because you just don't have that kind of fluidity with, with bare metal hosts. You can't add a host that quickly. It's just the nature of it is, is too much. Uh, and so you can do more of it with, with um, virtual machines and that, that's fine but then really containers provide you the ultimate flexibility you can spin up a container in a few seconds you know rather than perhaps tens of minutes with with a, a virtual machine that's fully loaded and that's why we find that we eventually got here that this is a really good match between the capabilities of the big data clusters and the the functionality that container virtualization provides yeah, it's really neat to kind of see this this maturation of the space. If we if we think of you know going from bare metal before where we're running everything, the name nodes, the data nodes, this is specifically in Hadoop world, and then we moved into a virtualized space and we can get the same performance, sometimes better. We move into a containerized, and now we're talking about decoupling 
compute from storage, right? And I think that's very much the space that that a lot of people, especially you guys, are living in today. So uh, you, you even wrote, I think it was an article before about uh, network performance and how mm-hmm. needing to have you know, you know disk present within the the or, you know close to the CPU. Now the network has basically converged, and and the overhead is very very minimal. So talk to us about. Uh, how that has has kind of evolved over the years, and and where do you see architecture for big data and Hadoop moving into in the future? Okay, that, that's a good point. I, I I didn't bring that up in the in the last last response, but that's an excellent uh, point as well. So uh, obviously Hadoop, um, Google file system, and so forth. That's circa two thousand and three when when there's some old paper was was written. Uh, at that time, we were we were dealing with one gigabit network infrastructure, and it, it made a lot of good sense to co-locate compute and storage because you could not draw storage, uh, you know, big data quantities of storage across a one gigabit pipe in any sort of realistic time. Um, today, fast forward 15 years, here we are in, you know, in 2017, 2018, um, we have, I, I, I rarely see a, a, an infrastructure of less than 40 gigabit, you know, in, in, a, in a given data center, more likely it's over 100 gigabit. So th- these things are, you know, quantum leaps over what we were dealing with uh, 15 years ago. You can easily move data across the network. Um, so the, the rationale for co-locating compute and storage, you know, sharding data f- across spinning disks, across, you know, multiple physical hosts is is no longer really required here. And we've proven that. So, you know, we, we've worked with other tech giants in the field. We, we've published papers on how uh, we can match the performance of bare metal jobs, you know, within clusters running on, on blue data. Uh, and this is not with using any specialized hardware. This is just with commodity off-the-shelf kind of hardware components that everybody can get their hands on. Um, if we talk about SSDs and some of the great... Um, uh, performance enhancements that are going on there—that's a completely, uh, a di- completely different issue. But to get to your to your point, Brent, uh, we we find the huge value add in being able to independently scale compute capacity and um, compute resources. Excuse me, storage capacity and compute resources. So, um, what we've done is with Blue Data allow the customer to easily or the user to easily easily do that. Um, when we go into typical enterprises, as I've talking about previously, the, you know, the typical enterprise on their Hadoop journey, they have these multiple Hadoop clusters and we see huge SKUs. There may be hundreds of physical boxes, but they're there not for compute need, but only for storage capacity. So the customer is paying for additional CPU and, and memory resources, which they're not using because they're only using those hosts for the storage capacity and vice versa. Um, they may have to pay for additional PCI slots or, or, or um, disk hardware when they don't really need the additional capacity because they're, they're having smaller data sets, but they need more simultaneous compute resources. With these virtualization solutions like Blue Data, that's no longer an issue. Uh, the customer can declare their capacity and they can declare how much CPU resource and they can be completely orthogonal and they can mix and match on a given Hadoop or big data cluster as they need and then reassemble it. A follow-on is something that we really find you know, in, in many of the industries that, that we're active in, which is 
you know, financial or banking or insurance or medical, where they can't copy the data. Um, if you're looking at a bare metal solution, you typically have to ingest or copy data from one HDFS file system to another. Um, those copies of data are extremely uh, problematic for, for companies with sensitive data. So they would much rather have a common data lake and then surface access to that data lake to multiple big data clusters. That way they can control, they can audit who gets to see what, when, and why. Uh, and not have to worry about multiple copies of their data floating around. Yeah, and you, I mean, you, you make a point, you've actually made a point that both Brett and I personally, and probably in our day jobs when we put our other hats on, uh, believe in passionately, which is that this um, this architecture, this kind of scale linearly architecture is a artifact of the past uh, of multiple different choices, right? The, the copy and triplicate and the cost of commodity and those kind of things. Uh, over 13, 15 years, things have shifted. Um, but what hasn't shifted is the, is the sales motion of the organizations that are selling those licenses for both the compute and the storage. Uh, and in fact, you know, when, if, if it, you know, we see a lot of times, you know, they're simply, they're compensated by licenses and therefore motivated to protect that architecture. How are you finding your customers being able to adopt this decoupling message successfully with these major kind of, you know, Hadoop type vendors? given their sales motion and their inclination to say, this doesn't work, it's not supported, those kind of things. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There, there's certainly there's certain friction between um, established players in the field, certainly, and as you point out, their sales models and how they're compensated. But, you know, let's, let's get right down to this. We're all here, we're all trying to find um, good, low-cost answers for the customer. And ultimately, if there is a, uh, a solution an advancement in technology that provides a lower cost solution of high benefit to the customer, it will, it will be successful. And, you know, legacy or older, older companies will have to just come along. And that, that's what we find. We find that proof is in the pudding. We find that we go to customers and they say, okay, we like your technology. We see how it comes here. Then they'll have to, to do, do negotiations with other vendors and anything can be worked out, you know, in a cost basis um, as long as it's, it's valuable to the customer. Yeah, and are, have you actually found that people have been able to adopt this? Like, do you does Blue Data have customers that have been able to to disaggregate without the uh, licensing vendor, you know, yes. impacting their architecture? Yes. Well, that's a good that's a good start. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes. So, and and the other people who the other architect and this is interesting, right? Uh, we see this already with public cloud, um, where. Uh, you know, people are deploying, uh, you know, Hadoop into public cloud. And we're even seeing, you know, model architectures from the vendors where they're not only doing it on HDFS, they're also doing it on things like S3. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we know that, that um, you know, disaggregation is, is, a, is a competent story. Um, and, you know, public cloud is a great uh, consumption mechanism, especially for, um, you know, fail fast, fail cheap, or, hey, I'm only going to use this every so once in a while or a couple of things. Um, so, it, what is your experience with having people start, you know, with an architecture, even a blue data architecture on public cloud, uh, you know, and do you kind of agree with what that, what that argument is as far as decoupling? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I, if the customer doesn't have a lot of legacy data residing on their data center, absolutely. They can go directly into the public cloud. Uh, it's a, it's an 
it's a great thing. So, you know, it's wonderful to be able to say, to tell a prospect, okay, you know, just, you know, here's your, do you have your uh, Amazon credentials? Great. Here, just download this from the marketplace. We'll install it. We'll have you up and running in, in 30 minutes, right? Rather than, okay, you have to acquire hardware. You have to, you know, bring the software into your data center. The, the experience to the customers is fantastic if that's what they require. If they just need the, the quick solution and bring up on, on a public cloud, man, that's, I, I, as a, as a, a consumer of technology as well as a producer of it, I really enjoy that, that it's so easy to bring this stuff up on a public cloud. So speaking of, of using the public cloud, let's talk about data locality and having either storage, let's just, I'll make it simple, having storage in the public cloud and compute in your private cloud. Right? Whether you have direct connect or not, is that a good idea? Is, a good is it a bad architecture? What's the, what, what's the truth behind the data locality yeah. in that instance? Today, you know, given technology and the cost structure today, we, we don't recommend that customers do that. Um, technologically, I don't think there's any um, uh, great hindrance to it eventually being successful. But today, the cost, you know, unless the enterprise has some special uh, hardware network connection agreement with a data center that's hosted by one of the, you know, the, the, the giants in the public cloud industry, that becomes real, really cost prohibitive and not particularly performant at, at this time. So even with the acceleration technologies that like Blue Data offers with our, our data tap and C-node caching, if you have compute resources running in Amazon or, or Azure or what have you, and you're pulling data from legacy file systems on-prem, you're probably not going to really see the performance that, that, that you want without some special work. Yeah, and so as you as you look at this kind of like um, this public cloud story, right? It becomes a it becomes a go to market. Um, so I'm curious for you and kind of you know blue data strategically. Um, do you, if you if somebody has no opinions, right? They don't already have investments or they're not they're not headed somewhere. I mean, obviously there's plenty of opinionated customers, um, but you know if they're not headed somewhere, what does blue data believe is the best path for a successful integration of this kind of as a service containerized? Um, uh, you know, big data experience? Is it uh, a hybrid approach? Is it start in public cl cloud, rationalize and bring it on-prem? Or what, it, what does that look like uh, organically from your perspective? Okay, that's that's a great question. You know, uh, and we, we, we come into this often. Um, I would say that there's, there's two factors to, to take into consideration. One is, uh, do, does the customer have um, an idea of the maximal capacity that, they, that they're going to want to... Um, Build, build to? The answer is probably they don't. Okay. But, but let's, if, if, they, if they knew that they were going to cap at a certain size, then we can make a decision. But I would ask the customer or the prospect at that point to really look at their entire um, computing needs, not just big data. Okay. So big data is one, is one component. But is the customer, are they adopting an internal uh, like Kubernetes cloud or a Mesosphere cloud, or are they looking at virtualization solutions like VMware? So what is their overall compute um, plan, their roadmap for the future? If they're going all into to public cloud, great. Blue Day is right there. That's the easiest way to start. But if they're really, if they are building out a Kubernetes cloud, or if they are building out a, a VMware or OpenStack or something on-premise, hey, big data can play in that. Blue Data has demonstrated that. 
you don't need a special architecture for running big data applications. You can plug it in. You can share resources with other um, software applications that are running in your data center. And that's what I would ask the customer to look at is, hey, what's your long-term strategy? And then blue data or big data in general can, can drop in and leverage the technology that you're investing in these other areas as well. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And so, and we as we talk about integrations, right? So you have some public cloud integrations. Can you kind of go through who you are integrated with uh, and where, sure. where you know where you're also planning to go? I mean, we'll take as much uh, roadmap as you're willing to share publicly. Just <laughs> no, just sure. remember that um, Brent and my three friends are all listening. So, uh, okay, good. Uh, yes, today. Uh, Epic 3.1, which is our currently shipping product, uh, works on or is fully supported on AWS. We have multiple customers uh, deploying that and using that on a daily basis. We have directed availability, which means um, you need a direct relationship with, with Blue Data, and we can deploy it on AWS and GCE clouds as well. The product is, is ready to go on those clouds, but what we're trying to do is understand the usage models um, of what customers want when they reach out to a, to a GCE cloud or an, or an Azure cloud. We know, we know full well because we have enough experience with AWS of what customers typically use it. Um, and, and so that's where we are. Those are the, those are the three that we, we, are, we are currently, um, our Epic, which is the name of the Blue Data software, can, can run on. AWS is generally available. Um, GCE and Azure are, have directed availability. We expect to have general availability probably mid next year. And and so and speaking of Epic, right? It's called Elastic Private Instant Clusters. If we researched well, um, yes, which is cool. I love that name. Um, so you know, th there's a couple of things here, right? So um, you know, first of all, it's obviously heavily focused on containerization and things like that. Um, why wouldn't? Uh, what I mean, there's plenty of people who say, "Hey, I could do this myself." Why does a customer not go look at you? Go, that's oh. a great idea, and then go, "Fine, I'll you know, I'll Kubernetes it myself." I've got Puppet and Chef and all these other things, and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw this down myself. I can do it. Why? Why is that completely a fallacy? Man, that's really a softball there, Brian. Okay, I know. Uh, I'm trying. I, I, I know. Brent asked you saw the your spark, it, yeah. your spark summit speech. Yeah. Yeah. You had to go there. Yeah, I know. I, I've written, I've written multiple, you know, blogs on this and presentations. Um, and and we have seen this time and time again. So yes, we'll we'll go into a prospect, you know, demonstrate the viability of this solution. Uh, the prospect will say, "Hey, I got smart guys. You know, I got I got smart women on my team. I can write the chef and puppet scripts. I can do all this sorts of thing." And then, you know, six months or twelve months later, they come back and say, you know, "Guys, it really was harder than I thought it was." Um, and that and that's the truth of the matter, right? Um, Kubernetes is a wonderful tool, but that's it. It's a tool. Same with chef and puppet. You know, same with with the automation tools that are available out there. You have to actually put them together into into a cohesive fashion, um, and then. Once you have assembled the tools, you have to actually have the, the big data expertise to actually deploy and configure the, the applications. It's not that hard to, to invoke the Cloudera Manager or the Imbari APIs to deploy a, a Hortonworks or, or a CDH cluster. But how do you tune it? I mean, at that point, there are thousands, literally thousands of switches in, in the standard Hadoop configuration, which have to be tweaked based on how much memory is available to the system, how much storage capacity, how many CPU cores are you using? 
Do you have some quality of service? And then we're not even talking about things which get into how do you integrate with your enterprise Active Directory user authentication system? How do you integrate with Kerberos and, and you know, help us if we have to set up cross-realm, you know, a trust between different realms within my complex Kerberos within a, within a cluster? How do I integrate with single sign-on? Where's my identity provider? How does this plug into my other applications? I am using ServiceNow. I have my own marketplace. All these things have to be put together. So it is, it is straightforward. I won't say it's easy. I'll say it's straightforward to come up with a 70 to 80% solution, something that looks nice to a demo, something that might run in a lab. But if you're looking for 7 by 24 production quality, you want to run all your tiers, not just your development tier. You want to run your development, your QA, your continuing integration, and your production tier clusters all on one set of hardware with one set of uh, infrastructure. You're going to need some serious help, and that's where Blue Data comes in. We just don't see a lot of these DIY do-it-yourselfers really fleshing this thing out or fleshing it out to, to, to get all the functionality they really need. And they will need it. I know they, they'll say up front, no, we don't really need that. We're just doing it for sandboxing, for development. You know, and, and, but things just don't, you know how things go. They don't stop there. They, they, they move upward, higher planes, higher levels of reliability and functionality. And that's where you need a partner like Blue Data. So, Tom, I'm going to plug uh, a, a post or a blog you did called Hadoop and Spark on Docker, 10 Things You Need to Know. I love this, right? You first talk about the buy versus build and, and the six right. steps to making the right decision. But then you go into this awesome um, building your first kit car, and, <laughs> and you somehow draw this correlation towards how you apply it to big data, build versus buy. So quickly just kind of run through that. I'll encourage everyone out there to go to the Blue Data blog and read it because it's actually pretty fantastic. I sent it out to a bunch of colleagues this morning. Okay. Well, the, the kit car uh, implementation is, is, is or the, the, the simile or whatever, the, the association I'm trying to make there is it's not a kit car, right? A kit car means someone has already done the work for you. So they make sure that the pieces fit together. You have two doors, you have a left one and a right one. You got four wheels. They kind of fit in the wheel wells, that sort of stuff. Uh, that's not the way it is with, with big data. It's not the way it is with the tools that are out there. They don't fit. Okay, and you're going to need that specialist to make them fit. I know a lot of people think, okay, Kubernetes it has these APIs, and I can just you know drop in a, a an application like Hadoop, or I can drop in an application like Spark or TensorFlow, but they don't really fit, and you have that you have to handcraft those additional parts, and that's that's where you need the, the expertise. Um, it would be easy if, if someone out there did have a kit car and all the APIs lined up perfectly and it would just take some, some Python scripting to, to put the thing together. The, the fact of the matter, that's just not the case. Yeah, and so, uh, sorry, Brett and I were fighting over who goes next. This happens <laughs> often. People know us by now. Uh, we're like an old couple. We just fight about everything. Um, it, it, yeah, there's, so I, I do want to know, we keep mentioning these things, right? The Dockerize, you know, Spark, things like that. Uh, I want to re I want to remind rewind a little bit into these integrations. Um, you know, we keep saying things: Kubernetes, Mesos, Docker, all of those, VMware. We've mentioned the cloud integrations. We've mentioned the infrastructure integrations. What about the actual, you know, schedulers and or you know, hypervisor container integrations as well? What does that What does that environment look like? And frankly, is there even even further upstream integrations uh, on top of all of that? Like, is there a preferred deployment method? Is it Kubernetes, or what does that look like? Uh, Kubernetes is, is, is fine. So, so, uh, we don't have a, 
we don't look at the container orchestrator itself. So, so that piece of software that looks at the available compute and, and memory and storage resources and deploys a container on a specific piece of hardware as being all that all that interesting. It's it's a nice piece of software. Um, we can talk about you know where where the state of the art is with Kubernetes today and where the state of the art needs to get in order for it to fully support applications like like big data. But I think that's kind of not really that the nature of your question. Um, the value proposition here with with blue data and, and those people who who uh, who write these big data as a service um, solutions is not around container deployment. It's not even around you know virtual machine deployment and so forth. Um, you can use any any sort of virtualization packaging. It's once that that container is deployed. What do you do with it, right? And, that, and that's where all the, the power comes from. That's where the patents are. That's where, where the, the technology is, is how do you actively and automatically configure it? How do you actually uh, uh, dynamically change the configuration of the cluster while the application is running to maximize the use of the available hardware resources? Um, Blue Data, since, since we were in existence prior to the popularity of Mesos or, or um, Kubernetes, we wrote our own container orchestrator, uh, which means we wrote code that will search all the hosts and deploy the container on the appropriate or the, the, the best suited host. But, you know, we are abs abs actively looking at replacing that orchestrator with one of these other solutions as soon as the functionality of those orchestrators becomes sufficient for us to actually use them for deploying our big data applications. Awesome. So... They're they're getting there. They're not quite there, and you're you're headed that direction as soon as you both uh, you you can converge on agreeing that you're all there. So um, that's correct. That's great. Uh, I'm glad that I can summarize that simply. That is my that is my core competency is saying really complex things <laughs> simply and hoping I get it right. Um, so you know my our other question, the one thing we love to ask, uh, especially those you know who have products and are integrating with with customers and solving real world problems. You have a couple of great customers that are listed, uh, you know, Panera and NASDAQ. You're welcome to kind of explain, you know, how, how you're impacting their business and, and making, you know, positive, you know, positive stories for them. Uh, if you have another one that's just like a super cool one that kind of amps you up and what, you know, Blue Data is really all about, uh, we'd love to hear kind of a customer story and what this looks like from, you know, beginning to end and, and what the outcome looks like. Sure. Uh, I, I don't really want to get into, into specific names because... We don't. I don't. I don't have. I don't know which names I can mention and which ones I can't. But but uh, let's just say there are a number of very large customers for Blue Data in the financial industry. And one one of the things is you know kind of really uh, successful here is we we made a sale into into one of these companies and they were really just kind of kicking the tires on Blue Data. They said, okay, this looks like kind of cool technology. We'll invest a little bit of it. We'll see how we're going. And then we get a call maybe a week or so after after the, the systems is deployed and brought up said, hey, you know, we're having this hackathon with our data scientists internally. Okay. Hey guys, you know, do you think this will actually work to spin up, you know, 50 or 100 simultaneous clusters for our data scientists and allow them to, you know, have this competition internally for 
for kind of this data analysis trade-off thing we're doing. And we said, yeah, sure, go ahead. And it, it was a fantastic success. So it, within within that company, they, they provided a, a level of support for, data, for their data scientists within this hackathon that they could never have accomplished with bare metal. They were able to spin up clusters. If one of those clusters was damaged during the, during the hackathon, they were able to tear it down and bring, it, bring the data scientists back up with another clean one you know, within a few minutes. So this was just a complete ideal use case for, for something like that within the organization. It's a real success story all the way around. Very cool. Yeah, just re- you know, reading through the stuff today, that's one of your value props is people leave their environments up all the time and it's wasting resources because they're scared to tear it down because right. it took a long time to build back up. And I think what you're doing is giving that ex- execution and that agility to happen very, very quickly. Um, so cool. Great story. Thank you for that. So Tom, um, you know, we're, we're coming to the, the end of our hour here. Is there anything we missed uh, that you'd like to to make sure that we, we cover today about uh, blue data? Uh, no, no, I think we've done a real good job of, of exploring, you know, the, the, the history of blue data, kind of where we're going. I would just say, you know, as, as all these things, you can't stay still. You know, blue, blue data, like I said, four years ago, we were on OpenStack. Now we're on containers. Tomorrow we'll be on something else. We'll be using Kubernetes. We'll be using whatever the next technology is. We actually, you know, we, we were just kind of uh, real happy uh, uh, middle of the summer. We were, we were bringing up TDE. We did fully integration with transparent data encryption. We think that's going to be a real help for getting people into the, into the hybrid cloud, further adoption of that, you know, with, you know, security, more security around, around your data at rest and data in motion. Uh, and we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And so we're, we're just really jazzed here at Blue Data. You know, I just want to let, let everyone know that's listening on, on the podcast is, the most important thing I can offer you is make sure that when, when you're planning your big data rollouts, big data as a service today, make sure you plan for the future because things are going to change. Right on. Well, cool. So um, what are some good places we can find you or Blue, da- Blue Data next? I know you were at uh, the Spark Summit recently. I think you've got some stuff coming up uh, in 2018 as well. So where can we find you? Sure. Obviously, our website will be the first place to start. We'll be I'll be presenting at, at Strata in San Jose in March. We'll also be presenting in London in, in 2018. We're, we're starting our expansion um, into, into the UK and the EU. Um, but yeah, we, we are active in every you know, big data um, uh, summit. We have our own meetup. Uh, probably every, every couple, of we- a couple of months, we have a speaker come in, speaks on, on big data topics. Um, so we're out there in the industry. Please, please okay. find us. Yep. Awesome, Tom. And then the last thing, this can be related to the industry, to or one of your passions, or completely uh, non-related. But what's a book that you're reading right now, or you've recently read uh, that you want to talk to us about? Hmm. Uh, I have to re- try to think of one that, that actually would be topical to to, to the. To it doesn't the, have to be. To it could just be a good discussion, book. Discussion here. Um, Oh yeah, it's actually this is a good one. So, I um I was reading. I actually saw the screenplay Dunkirk. Okay, and then I was reading the the book about about Dunkirk, and I was kind of struck by by um, a couple of things there. One is uh, an insurmountable problem. So the, the, the British Army had a terrible problem, uh, and I, I was struck by the fact they didn't give up. And I find that was a lot of what what we had new data we've had a lot of problems here you know they, they were very difficult we had to find creative solutions and i thought that that was very similar to what what i was reading there with uh with how the um the the british army found a, a creative solution for their very serious problem 
Okay, cool. Well, I appreciate that. Well, with that, we're going to shut it down, Tom. So thanks for listening uh, to the Hot Isle today, everyone. We, we encourage you to get uh, social with us. If you like this, if you didn't like it, if you have topics you want us to cover, let us know. Uh, that's how we find out most of our guests and uh, most of our topics. So please get at us on, on Twitter and uh, our blogs and various other places that you can find us. Um, so with that, we'll shut down the Hot Isle for today. My name is Brent Piotti. And I am Brian Carpenter. Tom Phelan, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brett.